Today I'm going to be reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, 12 to 17. Listen and be blessed. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Bergamon. This is the message from the one with the chap to edge sword. I know that you live in the city where center as is thrown, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was much reared among you there in Satan City. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. It taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sins. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. 16, repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. 17, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who received it. These are the ways of the Lord. Thanks, everyone. Well, good morning, everyone. That's a great passage, a tough passage. It's a wonderful passage. I think we should stand. I'd love to pray for us before we enter into the Word. Father, you said that you would give us a new name. You would give us a new name for your children who confess your name and to honor you. So we thank you this morning for the new name, and we thank you for uh, the name that is above every name. Lord, your word reminds us that, that God elevated you to the place of highest honor, gave you the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So may your name be exalted in these next moments as we open your word. May you heal the division in our land, Jesus. Would you give us all a calmness across this country, across our province? Would you strengthen your church for this hour? Would you surround those who are suffering among us, Avery and Diane and Michelle and their bodies and in their hearts, that they would be encouraged? And Lord, there are many others who are suffering in different ways, and we ask your strength. Guide us now, Father, as we open your word, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. 
My dad called me outside uh, one day when I was about 14, and on the back of the half ton was a brand new bright red scooter. Uh, he saw it in a store somewhere, and he bought it for me. I hadn't asked for it. I can't remember that I asked for it. I can't remember that maybe I told him that my cousin had a really nice scooter. I don't think I said that, but I, I selectively can't remember. <laughs> but it was an incredible surprise. We rolled it off the truck, and he handed me the keys. And you have no idea the excitement that I was feeling. That scooter and I became partners for a number of years. And it took me a lot of places, and I like to drive east of our farm to the edge of a big coulee to a place where they said was the highest elevation in the nearby countryside. And there I would stop, and on a clear day, you could look west to the beautiful Rocky Mountains. And they would come into focus like nowhere else in the area in which we lived. So on a nice day when it wasn't cloudy, those mountains would look amazing. If you're driving to Pergamum, the next church that we're visiting today, you would also be amazed because part of the city was located on a high acropolis, a thousand feet above city level, and it was very striking. And when you would round the bend coming into Pergamum, the stunning view of the Acropolis and the temples would come into focus. Magnificent. From miles away, your breath would be taken away as you simply imagine the glory days of this city. And what a word Jesus has for this church. So I urge you to buckle up. It's a beautiful view, but it is a bumpy ride. And if you've just joined us, we're walking through Revelation. First three chapters, we're symbolically walking among the churches that Jesus walked among, uh, the seven churches in Asia Minor. And so the, the, today is the, the city of Pergamum. There's a little map there that shows you where the Acropolis, that, that's the 1,000-foot uh, Acropolis. And here is where we're at uh, in the march. We started in Ephesus. Went along the Aegean Sea to Smyrna, the beautiful city which is Izmir today, then up to Pergamos, and next week over east towards Thyatira. But traveling north from Ephesus, you would finally make your way up into the Caucasus Valley, and you would see a great river that uh, is, would, you would drive alongside of. Uh, the city of Pergamum doesn't exist today as a city. Uh, you can see the ruins today, but you, the city isn't there. But it's now called Bergama. So it's, the, the name changed, but it still kind of sounds the same, doesn't it? Uh, Pergamum, Bergama. Sounds pretty similar. And you can see the great circular hill towering above the rest of the city. Pergamum was a pretty famous place, a population probably twice the size of Red Deer. Red Deer is 100,000. It was probably 150, some say even maybe 200,000 people. And the stadium or the amphitheater would catch your attention particularly. Look how steep they built that. Imagine being in the nosebleed section up on top 
and looking down to see the drama or the acting that was taking place. And the library was second only to the library in Alexandria. It had 200,000 volumes, not printed, <laughs> handwritten. This was a very educated city. The people lived below the Acropolis. It'll come on the next picture. Uh, the people lived below the Acropolis, below the, that stadium. And as you looked up, some writers say it was a spectacular view, but menacing. And on the top were four temples, three to Greek gods and one to a Roman emperor. The three gods are Athena, Dionysus, and Asclepius. And the most important temple on the Acropolis was Zeus. It was a structure measuring 120 feet long by 112 feet across. It had an altar in the middle that was 40 feet high. Now, friends, I can't even imagine the engineering that it took to put all of those things in place. There isn't much left of the Zeus temple today, but there is an interesting footnote in history that in the 1800s, 1880s, over 140 years ago, a German archaeologist working in the city of Pergamum removed that throne, that satanic seat from the hillside and took it to Europe. And today, you can Google it when you get home. <laughs> it's visible in the Pergamum Museum in East Germany, East Berlin. I don't know why anyone would want Satan's seat or throne. I sure wouldn't want it in Edmonton. And I wonder if many Berliners would sooner not have the seat of Satan in their city. Yet they took some pieces from Pergamum and they took them to East Germany where some years ago they rebuilt the Temple of Zeus and here's what it looks like. And it, if you Google this afternoon, you can get some better shots than that. But that gives you an idea. That doesn't give you the length and breadth. Jesus said to the church in Pergamum, I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. Of course, we know that Satan can only be in one place at one time, right? Although he has his army of fallen uh, angels, demons stationed the world over. But it's very sobering to think of living right next door to where Satan himself made his headquarters for a period of time. Talk about oppression. Have you ever traveled to a place that was dark spiritually? And, and suddenly you began to feel this weight of heaviness upon you. Mark and I had that experience uh, quite a few years ago, traveling in the Middle East. We experienced it. The darkness was palpable, so heavy. Well, without spending too much time on giving the background of Pergamum, you should know that this was probably, like Selena said, the most idolatrous city of all the seven churches. It was actually the capital city of the region. It was the Ottawa of the existing Asia Minor. Yes, minus the trucks. And they had a relationship with Rome that was very friendly. 
They were the first to dedicate a temple to the emperor himself. Part of the worship at the temple was an annual declaration where everyone pledged their allegiance to Caesar by saying, Caesar is Lord. And you could visualize the procession of people going through the temple and making the declaration. And you can see the sweat beads on the Christians as they're forced to march along in this lineup. This was no doubt the lineup that Antipas uh, faced. Jesus said, you, you refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Somehow, we don't know anything about Antipas. Somehow he was singled out. And legend says by, they killed him by roasting him in a metal encasement that was white hot. I, I want you to get the impression of this powerful culture with a little church meeting in house churches down in the lower town looking up to Satan's throne above them. I mean, what we enjoy today in terms of freedom is so amazing that we really take it for granted. I imagine they would have been thoroughly demoralized, to say the least, that they're living under the shadow of Satan's headquarters. As some said, some feel particularly that the huge temple of Zeus was in reality the temple where Satan lived. Here you have a handful of Christians. I don't know how many, perhaps a couple of hundred. We're not told. You're kind of left to kind of guess that. And maybe 500. Uh, again, we don't know. Amidst a population of 200,000 who were all bowing the knee to Caesar and worshiping at the temple of Zeus. And all of the other prominent gods were on display. And the pressure is on you to bend the knee as a follower. This was life in Pergamum. This was life. There was no separation of church and state. You believed in all of the gods. You believed in political allegiance. You, you gave that to Rome. And your culture was Greek and everyone blended in. You blended in to form the cultural, political, religious culture of the day. Everyone except the Christians. But for the rest of the city, if you wanted pleasure... You went to the temple of Dionysus. He was the god of wine and revelry. Basically, people went there to get drunk. And some terrible things happened there as a result of drunken stupor and orgies and crime. And they all went hand in hand. But the rule was that whatever happened in Vegas stayed in Vegas. And if you were in need of wisdom, you went to the goddess Athena. She was the one who had wisdom and knowledge. And if you were sick... For miles around, people came to Pergamum, to the temple of Asclepius, to worship this, the god of healing. And the priests would put people in a trance, and they would have them lay down in the temple or the hospital, so to speak. And at night, when it was pitch black and in the middle of the night, in their deep trance-like sleep, they, they would release the non-venomous snakes to crawl over their bodies in a ritual of healing. I don't know about you, but I would declare myself whole and healed. Get out of there. But that was their practice. And strangely enough, the medical symbol that we have today is, is a symbol, is a rod with snakes wound around it, and it all comes back to what happened in Pergamum. 
This is the way the Pergamum followers lived. So the church, secondly, the church and the message, the commendation is, I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Do you think it's difficult to be a follower of Christ in our country? Sometimes we might feel that way. I think we all sense mounting pressure. But for Pergamum, it was something else. And yet they didn't try to escape the pressure. They chose to endure the adversity of their environment. Have you ever heard of the missionary C.T. Studd? Spent his life in China, Africa, and India. Lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He modeled a life of being really close to the action. It was his motto to be on, on the front lines of ministry. And he wrote one day, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel. Well, <clears throat> I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That was C.T. Studd. And while everybody else was moving to the suburbs, the Christians in Pergamum were committing to remain in the inner city within a yard of hell and within a yard of Satan himself. So they decided to stay put in the midst of a rough ride. They buckled their belts. They put up with the behavior of the people of Pergamum, and they stayed so that their light could shine in the darkness. Antipas was probably the first martyr in the city, and even though they saw him die, they did not retreat. And Jesus says, you've remained loyal. You did not deny me. At a time when the Christians could have fudged a little, compromised a little, softened their stand a little, they didn't. It's not easy, is it, to take your stand when your numbers are small and the opposition is gigantic? None of us can imagine the trepidation of waking up in the morning in North Korea if you're a follower of Christ. And there are followers of Christ in North Korea. But to live the whole day watching your back, praying, careful not to make the wrong move, or China, or Afghanistan, or can you imagine being a Christian in an ISIS camp? That somehow you came to know Christ in an ISIS camp? How vulnerable you would always feel? But this was so commendable for Pergamum Christians who refused to deny Christ's name, even when Satan moves in next door or sets up his shop across the street. Instead, they dig in, they hold their ground, regardless of the personal cost. That's commendable faith. And some of you probably face some really tough things, too, at school, at work, at university, in your community. Bless you as you stand strong, because it's not easy. Secondly, correction. Here's a word that always shows up to change the tenor of the conversation, the word but. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. 
Now, that might seem a little like, oh, what is, what is that? That's a little off the wall uh, or vague. Un- unless you know the story of Balaam. <laughs> this is called the teaching of Balaam. The story's laid out for us in Numbers 25. If you have time to go back sometime today and gather the details, but I'll summarize it for you. Balaam was a false prophet who had been hired by the king of Moab to curse Israel. Because the children of Israel are, are moving along and they are about to enter into the promised land. And they are scaring the stuffings out of the king of Moab because he anticipates that this huge herd of humanity will obliterate his tribe. And they're about to enter the new land and he has watched as they've already taken down the Amorites and the Hittites and he thinks he's next. So as a means of protecting himself, he hires Balaam, who is a false prophet, to curse the people of Israel. Balak, the king, says to this man, Balaam, I'll I'll pay you to put a curse on this people. And I'll pay you handsomely. And that appealed to Balaam. Of course, that was his job, which shows why he did most of his prophesying, because there was a little of this in it for him. And Balaam came, and he looked out at this massive group of Israelites, and he tried to curse them. And every time he opened his mouth to curse them, (laughs) out came a blessing. And he did it over and over again, but he couldn't curse him. He would say, the Lord bless you. And he would say, the Lord bless you. And he couldn't, he couldn't curse them. And Balak, the king of Moab, is beside him, so angry at him. Why don't you curse those people? But Balaam said to Balak, I think I know how we can do it. Have you got some pretty girls over there in your Moabite camps? I suggest we use the beautiful young women. And so the guys over in the Israeli camp weren't able to resist them, and Moab sent the girls down to the Israeli camps. Let the girls have a feast. Of course, the feast involved more than food. It involved pagan religion, and it involved sexual compromise. And so the young men of Israel fell for it, and the sadness of the story is that many of them fell into idolatry and immorality and offended God. And God called upon the people of Israel to repent. And if you read the story, there was a great loss of life because of this sin. And Jesus says to this young church, this story is your story. It's happening all over again at Pergamum. The idolatry and the immorality of Israel with the teaching of Balaam is within your church. And it's weakening your church. Remember the old saying, you can take the girl out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the girl. For some it was hard. You can take the believer out of Pergamum, but you can't take Pergamum out of the believer. For some that was true, not all. They were feeling that relentless pressure from from which they had come out of. But the temptation was to slip back into it again. The magnetic attraction of their past was pulling them back, sucking them back in. And Zeus was calling and Diocenes was calling. Can I just remind you of this truth again, friends? 
Growing and being mentored in the ways of Jesus is something that must be intentional. All through life, from, from very young to very old, we never drift toward the Lord. We always drift away from him. We drift in the direction from which we've come out of. We drift in the direction of our weakness. And every step you take in the direction of continuing your mentoring journey is important. You have no idea what Jen is saying this morning of how important a life group is, unless you're part of one. It's sustaining. You don't know how much that sustains you and strengthens you. People serious about walking a similar pathway to us are incredibly valuable to us. Uh, I don't know all the struggles that you have to go through, but I, I know that there's great value in being together like we are here on Sunday morning. There's amazing value in that. There's wonderful support in praying together with a small group during the week. There's amazing refreshment in being in the Word of God personally every day, listening in prayer for the things that God is saying to you. That's intentional mentorship. A recent study released by Barna found that 58% of Americans believe that moral truth is up to the individual. They believe there are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone all the time. You decide. The report goes on to say that the pull of secularism is especially strong among younger men and women with those under age 30 much less likely than older adults to select God as the basis of truth, more likely to say that moral standards are decided by the individual. Nearly half of born-again Christians do not believe in objective moral truth, and yet this was Christ's primary purpose in coming to the world. He came to testify to the truth. Ponder the ramifications of that reality. There are two ways to kill a church. One is to kill it externally, Pressure from the outside, but actually that way never really works. They've tried it in every country, persecution. It never works. The church actually grows stronger under persecution. But the other way to take a church down effectively is to infiltrate the church, confuse its teaching, lower its conduct and behavior, adopt the norms of the culture, get people confused about who the church really is, and that's happening on a wide scale in our world today. Some of the issues are really hard today, partly because they contain some truth. It was just so clear, but they contain some truth. And we need to keep praying, Lord, help me to see with great clarity what this issue is. What about the deity of Jesus Christ? What about the contemporary issues that we face? Lord, help me to see it and understand it. Joseph Stoll uh, tells of a conversation. He used to be the president of Moody Bible. He had, a, he had a conversation with a pastor in former Soviet Union. Stalin's reign was the worst time, said this particular pastor. I had two KGB agents come to me and say, we'll take care of you, the pastor. You just stay in the church, do what you do, but once a week give us a report on every one of those Christians who come to your church. You work for us. He said to them, I can't do that, and I can't do that to God, and I can't do that to this flock. 
So they sent him to a prison camp in Siberia, and he endured the forced labor in the cold for 10 years. But he did find other Christians in the camp, and God used those believers to fulfill his purposes. He said, I was a carpenter building towns for Stalin. We'd go out in 60-mile radiuses, and there we would fellowship together. Today there are 100 churches in Siberia as a result of those small fellowship groups that went out and built towns. There are similar stories all over the world, including China or Burma, which is today Myanmar. Uh, Judson, the missionary, went to Burma in 1812. And at the end of his ministry, after suffering and working so hard, there were probably about 25 Christians, that's all. And when the translation of the Bible happened into the Burmese language 150 years later, and they had a celebration... They noticed Judson's name written somewhere, and and one man said, all of this points back to Judson. He loved the Burmese people. He suffered for us. He died a pauper, but he left the Bible for us. And when he died, there were few believers, but today there are over 600,000 of us, and every single one traces our spiritual heritage to one man, Reverend Judson. But Judson never saw it. And that will be the case for many. We may be called to invest our lives in ministries behind the scenes for which we do not see much immediate fruit, trusting that the God of all grace who oversees his work will ensure that our labor is not in vain. When men and women refuse to compromise, they may lose much, but through them God will fulfill his higher eternal purposes. I don't know how much the church grew in Pergamum during this great pressure cooker of a time, but I'm guessing they experienced some amazing growth. Now, it seems that the Nicolaitans were also doing the exact same thing, uh, probably the same people Jesus was, was referring to in Revelation 2 in the midst of uh, his message to, the, to Ephesus. So he begins by saying, likewise, or in similar way, or thus meaning the Nicolaitans were contemporary versions of the Balaamites. Jesus says, repent of your sins, or I will come to you suddenly and will fight against them with the sword of my spirit. What Jesus is saying is is that the church in Pergamum was not only accepting the sinner, but was also accepting the sin. They were beginning to compromise so that everyone could live in peace and get along. Let's all get along. Let's all live in unity. And Jesus offered the church in Pergamum an opportunity to get back on the right track. He called them to repent. He called them to change their hearts and their minds. He called them to change their behavior. And Jesus was saying, it's necessary to remove these false teachings from your midst. And if the faithful remnant don't do it, then he would come against them swiftly, waging war on them with the sword of his mouth, disciplining them justly as the righteous judge. That's heavy. You never want to go against and do battle with Jesus, the righteous judge, the one with the two-edged sword, because there's no one who can stand against him. There's no one. Finally, the promise. But look at the hope in this passage. Jesus doesn't leave us without hope. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. 
To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that's been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. God, Jesus, gives these words for the encouragement of the church in Pergamum, for those who are steadfast and strong and don't swallow this teaching that has crept into the church, Jesus offers two things. One, some of the manna that's been hidden away in heaven. Now we know about the manna with the children of Israel, this mass of humanity moving through the desert and needed to be fed and how God fed them. And they, he, this manna bread dropped down from the sky and fed the, these these people, and they had it for breakfast, and they had it for lunch, and they had it for dinner, and I'm sure they tried every possible recipe to make it more appealing. But that manna sustained them, and when they crossed the Jordan into the promised land, they left uh, some of that manna, and they put it into the Ark of the Covenant, hidden from sight. But it was a remembrance of God's provision for them, just like we have communion. It's a remembrance. Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, you don't need anything else to feed you. You don't need anyone else to give you joy, to give you the thrill that you're looking for. I will be your food. I will be your bread of life for you. I will be everything you need. Feast on me. And I will feed you in those tough times like I did my people in in the wilderness, and you will have everything you need. Maybe the place where you live these days is, is you're starving. Oh, not for food, uh, not physically, but starving emotionally, starving spiritually. And Jesus says, I'll take care of you in that place. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. I'll use my spirit to nurture you and sustain you. And when you are desperate and you need peace, my spirit will give you peace. And when you need encouragement, you just need to ask for it, and I'll encourage you. My spirit will encourage you. And when you need guidance, my Holy Spirit will guide you, and he will refresh you and make a hard place, a place where I fill you and care for you. And when you need wisdom, I'll be your wisdom. When you need some insight, I'll, I'll be your knowledge. And I'll provide people for you in your journey. And I will give each to each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives this. Now, honestly, this is a tough verse. It doesn't have a lot of other biblical context to help us understand. So no one, including me, should be dogmatic here. There is a connection to Pergamum and other Asia Minor cities in the sense that invitations, this is my view, uh, were sent by the emperor. And they would put them on a little white piece of marble and your name would be engraved as an invitation to come to the festivity. They would engrave it on the marble. And when you entered the festivities, you would present your invitation on this white piece of marble that had your name on it. So think of the Christians who couldn't go to the festivities because they didn't have the piece of marble and their name wasn't written on it and they had no welcome there. 
But now they hear the words of Jesus that he will ultimately invite them to his feast. And their name will be on there. There will be a name that no one else knows. It'll be your unique name. It's your PIN number. No one knows it. It is so intimate. And when you come before the Lord, your name will be engraved and you will be welcomed into the festivities and pleasures of his presence. And on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands. Did you, have a, did you have a nickname when you were growing up? It was just very personal for you. No one understands except the one who receives it. You'll be given a new name. It will be perfect for you. I wonder if that's the new name that's written in the book of life. I wonder if Jesus put our new name in the book of life when we cross the line of faith. So encouraging. Jesus says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying. Is your new name written on the stone? Is your new name in the book of life? If you're waiting for an opportunity to say yes, oh, now would be a good time. Just say to him, Jesus, I want your name to be written down, my name to be written down in the book of life. I want to have your new name. I want to give my life to you and live for you. I want you to forgive my sin and take control of my life and walk with me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you that you love us with such an intense love. We know, Lord, from this word that you're very protective of your church. Very protective. And you want your body to thrive and stay strong. And we ask for this to be true among us at Southwest Community Church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.